Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Pamela Hackett, CEO of Proudfoot Consulting, and um, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Series. Pamela, thank you. It's really great having you on the series, and you come highly recommended by uh, General Sir Richard Sharif, who was the former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. Now, that's a good friend to have. And he did, a, he did a great series on this. It was lovely to talk to him. But I'm really interested in current role um, as CEO and, and really particularly your life journey into leadership. People respect and admire you as an inspiring leader. But, but where did you pick it up? You know, what did you learn? So tell us, tell us about that. Sure. Boy, a little bit of a, that's a big question, right? Um, so I joined Proudfoot. 100 years ago, 1987. So that put me at about 12, I think. Um, but in my early 20s and came out of school, um, I'd been working since I was about 14 years old. So I was doing four or five shifts a week while I was going to high school. And so the whole work ethic thing has, has been in me, I think, since, since, uh, since I got out of bed as a kid. Um, but joining Proudfoot was a real um, experience and it was it was an experience because it was one that took you into the real guts of companies you got to do something that probably most young young people today would just dream of to be able to get into an organization and in your 20s meet the CEO and, and all that c-suite all those wonderful guys with all that experience and you get to actually learn how businesses run and how managers and leaders make decisions that you probably don't get if you're not in a consulting role, if you're going through a traditional route of a career kind of trajectory. So for me, it was it was happenstance. I didn't wake up and say, boy, I want to become a consultant. I answered an ad in the newspaper in Australia that said they were looking for something called consultants. Um, and you rarely bumped into people in those days who were doing consulting in, um, in the 80s. Um, and so getting into that, was was it was like walking into another world um and and then i just stuck at it so here i sit 30 odd years later um the ceo of the company that i joined back then so clearly an overnight success you know it took me 30 odd years to become ceo um but what a what an what an amazing journey you know as a as a young girl who grew up in the suburbs of sydney for the for the latter part of kind of uh, young 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 adulthood late teens kind of time um, it was a real experience to come into something completely different like consulting and stay. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And I mean, I rarely meet people who've been 30 years in the same and gone from consultant to becoming the CEO. I mean, take me back to your days uh, growing up in the suburbs of Sydney. And I, I'm very fond of Sydney. It's a, a city, I think, after London that I love the most. Uh, my, my brother was... Um, out in um, Australia for many years um, and um, very fond of Graham and he, uh, he was working out as a surgeon out there. And um, so, so visiting and, and traveling around that great place. Um, but, but what about the upbringing? Who, who, was the, who were the role models? Who, who influenced you? Who did you learn about leadership from teachers, parents, whatever? Tell me more. I think that um, when somebody asks me, where did you grow up in Australia? So I grew up in actually Singapore, Germany, the UK with the, you know, being the daughter of an, of an army officer. So, um, and, and grew up the real typical army brat life. And then we settled in Australia and we settled out in all the army camps in Australia. So we first got to, to um, Australia as um, going straight into the nation's capital, Canberra, um, which was, which was a, a different kind of experience, a real, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, if you imagine Washington on a very small scale, you know, that's Canberra because it is a government city. Um, and then we moved to the suburbs of Sydney and it was the Western suburbs of Sydney to a, to a really traditional Australian army kind of army barracks, army camp type environment. 
Um, and so growing up there was kind of interesting because it was completely different to where I'd been as a kid everywhere else. And I'd been to military schools before that. And suddenly I found myself in a normal school it, surrounded by normal kids whose parents weren't in the army. Um, and the daughter of a, a British army officer and a German mum. Can you imagine, you know, the two of those together? So I hate to say this, but in, when you grow up in that environment and my brothers went to boarding school. So though I had two big brothers, I never saw them. Um, so I think when you grow up a, a quasi only child because you're not really, but you are. And, um, and your parents are so diverse in terms of their views on the world and their personalities, a very, a very quiet, um, quiet commanding kind of dad. Um, and at the same time, a mum who was that fiery German, just this is the way that you do it, the tea towel goes here. So very much, I mean, not to get into that kind of personal detail, Jonathan, but, you know, that's kind of the upbringing of, of a kid who, who comes into Australia late, an immigrant, if you like, um, with immigrant parents. And so I think you learn really quickly, um, or, or I did. I, it's funny, when I look back, I didn't really notice in Australia that everyone was an immigrant. And so today, when you talk about diversity, to me, that was just normal. The, the kid next to me was from Portugal. Um, you know, the kid across the aisle was from Vietnam. And that was just, that was Australia back in the 80s. And everyone had an accent because you were all first-generation immigrants. And so when I go home now, I, I find it quite funny when I get off a plane and I see the kids and I'm still in, the, in my world of, of those days and I'm expecting all these international accents and not everyone, everyone looks like they're from all over the world and yet they're all in Australian accent. And I think that's the beauty of Australia. And I think that had a huge impact, you know, on, on the way that I looked at the world, just a really diverse kind of um, innate, embedded kind of thinking about the world. Yeah. Yeah, oh, amazing. And I, I think it gives you a breadth and perspective, which in your consulting, you were traveling all over the world anyway. It's almost anyway. Like part, of, part of your life. And um, so let's perhaps move on to uh, in your life, in your career, what would be your proudest moments and some of your darkest moments? And what did you learn about that as a leader, uh, the leader we experience today? So, of course, when you get as a woman and in a publicly traded company um, that's publicly traded out of the UK to get promoted, if you like, to the CEO role, um, that's pretty damn good. You know, you, you do sit back and think, oh, wow, um, really? You, how did I do this? You know, and, and all of the things that come to mind as to, boy, I'm not sure I can do this because that sounds like an awfully big job, you know. Um, but after 30 odd years in the business and you've done just about every role and you've got all this knowledge in your head, it's actually something that is pretty exciting because suddenly you're in the chair where you get to, you get to bring all of that to bear and you get to influence the business. Um, in, so super proud, super sad that my dad was not around to, um, I, he's, he was such a big influence. He was the guy who just said all the time, you know, you can be anything you want, Pamela. Um, that's, that was just the, the world again that, that I grew up in. It's only when you get into the real world a little bit later that you realise, well, maybe you can't be everything you really want. Um, and there are some parameters. Um, so super proud of that. Um, interesting times, though, because we were a business that was in turnaround. And so the remit for me was not um, get in there and continue to grow a company, but get in there and reinvent a 75-year-old business that needed to modernize. You know, we've got a, this beautiful, long, rich history of doing wonderful work with clients and, and doing all this work that's relevant in almost each decade. If you looked back at, at uh, each decade in business, there's always kind of a theme involved. And we were very, very adept at, at, um, at delivering on those themes. And then suddenly we woke up one day as a business and, and realized there's all these other consulting firms. There's a, a number of spin-off consulting firms. Everybody's out there. The marketplace is packed with people who are just like us. And, and boy, you don't look so special anymore. And so the remit there was really to get in and modernize um, and reinvent a 75-year-old brand um, and, and take us out of, take us through and out of uh, turnaround. So interesting times for somebody who's a first-time CEO, someone who hasn't really led a business before. Um, and, you know, there's lots of research on whether the first-timers or the guys who have all that experience 
experience will do do better or or, or not. Um, and for me, it's it's kind of a time will tell. So yeah. I think that's that's probably the 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 most um, the the proudest time. I have to plug a little bit. Um, my my more recent one is I I've always wanted to write a business book, and finally I got got one out of me. So you know, tell I'm, us the name so people can can manage to right. engage. Yeah, manage to engage. Manage it's, to engage. Um, yeah, yeah. How great how great managers can create remarkable results, and it is really focused on the whole employee engagement story. Um, you know the the terrible stats that you see around the world that say most people come to work and really are not engaged. They really don't like it. Um, you know they'd much prefer to just busy their way through the day and look forward to getting home again. Um, and of course, those stats now they haven't improved. And coming out of a pandemic, or in some countries still sitting in it. it can you imagine, all I think is, can you imagine how difficult it is to engage people in this awfully scary world that we're in today? And yet we are so reliant on each and every soul to help reinvent, transform, do all these changes that businesses need to do when they're coming out of a major disruption like a pandemic. So for me, it was, it was, um, it was all about writing something that would enable or, or would give well, if I step back, um, I think one of the reasons the stats are so bad, it, you know, some of the, the Gallup stats will say 70, 80% of people are not engaged at work. That's huge. That's pretty much all your workforce, you know, with, with the exception of, of that tiny little percentage. And I think to myself, why is it that we're so bad? Uh, I mean, we all grew up in, 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 you know, in our jobs and some of us are very lucky, like me, who just loves work. It doesn't really matter about the environment around. I just, I love what I do. And, um, and, and, and the, the leaders I work for will come and go, I'm still going to love what I do. And yet all these people don't feel that way. And I, I really got to thinking about that, particularly sitting at home after not being able to get on a plane and, and really having that think time and said, is it, really, is it really about culpability or is it about capability and capacity? Do people really know how to engage? And so that's what got me on the, the journey of writing that book. Um, and then I was thrilled when Wiley Publishers said, yep, uh, we're, we're happy to publish it. So that's my, my, my exceptionally proud moment more recently. That's, that's exceptional. Um, um, my first, two questions. First question is, when did the book come out? And the second question is, if you were to give the audience of CEOs and business leaders two really pragmatic tips about how to engage people when they're all working from home, and probably a lot of the time they'll either have a hybrid or many will carry on working from remotely. So when it came out and two great pragmatic, simple tips about engaging people better when they are remote from you. So I'm ahead of myself and it comes out on March 30th. Yes. And, um, yes. So it will be in all major bookstores, apparently, um, around March 30th. Yeah. I will, and, I will uh, read it and I will <laughs> write a review because I write reviews. Of Fabulous. I write a review on, on my website. And um, pragmatic. So that's the whole idea of this book is really pragmatic solutions, um, enabling people to really see that that engagements. It's it's no more about perks and policies, um, you know, than it is about making people making people feel that you're a great guy. It's really about it is about how you manage and lead. But if you can think to yourself. If you want to be a great leader, the real first thing I think that you have to do is manage to engage. And it's the double meaning of manage. It's really the question is, are you managing to engage? Are you really pulling that off? Are you when you get to work and when you interact with people, can you walk away and say to yourself, I just I, I engaged. I did something that really makes a difference to that person. So now turn that into pragmatic solutions. And there's a couple of things that that you, you I think when you talk about today and people working from home in the book and something that, that I've now brought to our, our business is a concept called one five thirty, And it is that simple. It is check in, not up, check in once a day with your, your team, with your either as a team or individually, preferably individually check in five, check in once a week, but have a much more meaningful conversation. So once a day, how's the day going? What are you up to? You know, how's the work going? Um, and how are you feeling? Are you, are you, are you, are you and particularly today, are you well? 
Um, so it's that, you know, check in once a day, have a really good conversation for about 30 minutes once a week. And that's more about how did the week go? And how are you feeling? How are things going in general? But also, how's the work content going? And then 30, once a month, have a really meaningful conversation about how the job is going. How's your career going? What training? What coaching? What guidance? And if you can use those three points in time, if you can get that into a rhythm in your business, you're doing something that a lot of the times managers, leaders, they they often forget. And that's that engagement is, is all the starting point is all about connection. So super pragmatic in that you could start doing it right now um, and nothing will stop you, you know, from being able to do that. No. And, I, and I do think it's super important to have that level of connection today. Yeah, I, I saw your, your tip on 1530. I thought it was really just sound. And people need sound, pragmatic little things. So we talked about proudest moments and things that have worked well in your work and then also in your personal life. What, what would be a couple of dark moments and what did you learn about yourself during those dark moments? Sure. Um, I, I think in... As a first-time CEO, there's probably um, more than I would want to re reflect on. You know, you you really do. I, I went home often thinking, boy, that you know, that's not really how I intended that to turn out. Um, and so I think, on the one hand, you you look at the role that you're in um, and the things that you do, and you say to yourself, is it. Is it, um, I'm trying to, I've lost my word that I, I want to use there. Is it, um, I think that the job can often be a really brutally thankless, hard job. And you're trying to bounce all these balls and hold people accountable, but engage them. Um, and so one of the things that I, I think I learned um, really quickly was that my level of transparency required, it could go either way. It, my no filter um, that I tend to bring to my life and my work. Um, if, if you spend time with me, um, you, you just know that whatever comes out of my mouth is exactly what I'm thinking. Um, and so that's not always a good thing when you're in the CEO role and it can get you into a little bit of trouble and it can turn into some pretty um, hairy and, and dark kind of moments. But I think um, in doing that, what I've learned is that you've got to make sure that you surround yourself with the right people. And so I'd spent a lifetime really talking about the fact that, that um, getting people off the bus is the last resort. You should do everything you possibly can before you decide and elect that somebody needs to get off the bus. And now what I really talk about, and one of the, the biggest lessons for me is, make really sure you get the right people on the bus to begin with. So you're not in a position where you have to take them off the bus. Um, and I think that with that level of transparency um, in, in the way that I operate, you have to have a really mature team. You've got to have a team that can have open and frank discussions and feel that that's okay. And so I find myself now saying to people, put on your heavy armour today this isn't a personal conversation this is just brutal facts of where we sit as a business and let's not get into defense mode let's just talk about what it is that we need to do to be able to move forward um, and try to you know I've, I've learned that I have to try to soften my my uh, non-filtered approach to to uh, giving feedback um, and also depersonalize it uh, and I, I do so agree with you um Time and again, different leaders. Um, Alison Nimmer, the CEO of the Crown Estate, which is a 13.5 billion business that she took from 10.5 billion to, to 13. And I was lucky enough to be her coach working with her. And she's a very fine lady. She got she got knighthood. She got a DBE for the work she did. And she's she's now able, having done it for eight years, to, to take a sabbatical and then think about what next, which is oh, a nice situation to be in. But she said, you know, surround yourself with an army of metaphorical giants, men and women who are two inches taller than you, but spend a lot of time getting the right people. Uh, she didn't describe it like on the bus, but you're right. The, get the right, hire the right people, spend a lot of time. It's better to, as one guy said, it's better to have a hole, a gap than an asshole. So, oh, I love that. So, so, so do without someone for a while. If you can't find the right man or woman, to fill that spot better than have the hole yeah. uh, 
but then get the right person on board, the, 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 the selection, the onboarding, meeting everybody, you're really certain about the psychometrics, and then really induct them well and, and spend a lot of time to, to get them to get the essence of the culture and how they show up. But you can, that, that she found that, you know, half her attitude, knowledge and skills you can develop. Yeah. But if their attitude right. stinks, you'll never change it. And their attitude will define their altitude, the, the, the way they do it. And, and often I've come across CEOs who've hired people just because they, they really like their character and character is everything, ethics and character. And they'll then find, they'll make a role because they've got the right person. They'll find a role for that person because they're the right one. Whereas I've seen time and again, uh, I would be very wealthy if I got paid even just a pound for every situation, but where people have hired the wrong person in a hurry, desperate to get someone, and they spend months getting rid of them. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's awful. And, and there's a lot of damage around it. Yeah. yeah correct. Yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the collateral damage. Yeah. And, and if you were to share a, a, a personal story of a, of a dark moment in your personal life and, and what you learned from that was the, was the one you'd be prepared to share? I think, um, oh gosh, you know, I, the problem with me is all I do is work. Um, and so just about everything has some kind of a, a, a connection with work. But I will say um, it's still in the same theme around uh, people and bringing people on. I think um, I often will, will ask other senior executives, would you hire a friend? And it's interesting the response you get because some of them will say absolutely and it's always been um, a delight and it's always worked. And then others will say absolutely not. And I'm in the absolutely not camp. I really, um, I, I think that when it comes to work and you, and you hire someone that you know and you know that you're giving them um, a stretch role, you can actually set yourself up to, to have a big failure. And I think one of my darkest uh, moments is actually coming out of that because I'd made a couple of, of terrible mistakes when it came to hiring. And, and clearly now I spend, I'm with you, I spend all that time really making sure it's the right person. Because I, I was in a, a turnaround situation, speed was so important at the time that I said, no, I'm better off to have somebody rather than me do Doing everything um, and let's bring them in even when we know they're not the right person and boy that's a mistake um, and it can cause such dire consequences not just for you but for your team so I've been in a, a horrible position where a couple of my team members came to me and said you know we don't want to work with that individual please take them away please don't make them work with us um, you know can you do something about them and of course, at that point in time, you're, you're so concerned that you're going to lose the respect of the great team members that you've got. So, you know, back to your darkest moment question and uh, and uh, terrible situations that happen in your life, it's, it's, it kind of all comes together to culminate in, boy, I, I learned the lesson of getting the right people on board. Yeah, very much so. And then all this experience that you've gained in the organization, all the different firms, hundreds of different firms that you've worked with and your firm has worked with and you've really helped them turn around knowing what you know now if you met your 18 year old pamela your younger self what one bit of wisdom would you give yourself now you've learned all the mistakes and you've you've made all the mistakes i think um you know in addition to the surround yourself with the right people um it's interesting i i had breakfast with um there was a a mining exec who i who I had actually met at a, at a conference and his daughter um, was embarking on her career. And he asked me if I would have breakfast with her to give her um, some of the things that I've learned and, and to give her a connection into a, into a C-suite um, person. And I sat with her and, and she asked me that question. And my response was, put your own personal board together make sure that you've got a group of people that you can go to to get real, um, real truth from them so that you've got somebody and, and different perspectives that you can go to when times get tough or when you need to make decisions where perhaps the people that you're, you're working with may not be the right people to give you that kind of advice. 
Um, and so I think having your own, you know, personal board is a, is a real, if I'd done that when I was a kid, how, how, how brilliant would that be to have some great people that your dad knows or that you're, you know, somebody else knows that can connect you and you can go to them and say, this is my little board of, of expertise. Mm. So personal board, I think is a big one. I'll, I'll add one little other one and that's know the difference between real stress and, and, and what I now call fake stress. Um, you know, really make sure that you can tell the difference between what you should get stressed over and what you should just look at and think, oh boy, okay, I need to do something with this. It's an alarm bell, but it's not worth the stress. You know, know when to walk away from, from something instead of saying, oh my goodness, this is high stress. Yeah. Uh, two, two thoughts have, have come to mind. Uh, one, I, I have a collection of CEOs and an admiral and, and some uh, a CEO of a charity. And there's about um, eight of us, we come together. We've been doing it for the last three years. I call it the board you can't afford. I don't yes. they just, We just come together and, and we run almost like a wisdom council of, of um, sharing a live issue they have. And the others don't tell them what to do. They just share when they've had a similar thing, what they did and got it wrong or, or, or information that they might have. And then the person makes their own decision and then they all appreciate equality about that person. It's called, I call it the board you can't afford. Just write that down. Yeah. Jonathan, it, I love that. I may need to pay you for that. Someone, someone told me it years ago and, and I just so liked it. Uh, and the second one, this, this whole thing about real and fake stress is, is so, so true. People go, oh, I'm so, so stressed. I'm so stressed. No, no. Yeah. Literally. I'll tell you what stress is. It's, it's a wartime situation or, uh, I've got a situation with my my brother who's been uh, attacked by a man who tried to murder him, and and he's he's under life support in in a hospital. That's stress. This yeah. Is, when you get the real things that matter. But there's a wonderful book called, um, is it? Don't stress the, don't stress yeah. don't stress the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I wrote a, a book review about it. Um, Richard Carlson, Dr. Richard Carlson. Yes. And um. Because so much in our life is just small stuff. It's it's a first world problem. It's not a, it's not a real problem, and and it's when situations where someone's life is is at risk, or or you know, and that is always the question I ask: Has anybody died? And if they haven't, this is really not stress. So I love that point. Um, moving on to the inspiring leadership compass and the components of it, I'm interested in in your experience firstly about moral question MQ as we call it, and the the morals and the values you try and aspire not try uh, trying is lying as as uh, yoda said to luke in star wars um the morals you you aspire to live by and how you pulled yourself back when you let your moral code slip and you didn't live by it. a bit like hiring a friend when you really knew you shouldn't have done what what would be your experience and tip here my my big one is integrity um and and there's a lot of you know a lot of other um values and, and that whole moral compass, I think, that comes into life while you're, particularly when you're leading a company. But um, the big one for me is always integrity. And, and for me, it has a real double-edged sword because I take it so seriously um, that it is hard for anyone who has stepped on the wrong side of integrity with me to bounce back. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm eager to take all the the feedback that says everybody deserves a, a second chance. But once you cross the line on integrity, I think you, you cross the line that's tough to come back from. Um, and I think trust is something that it's like that old phrase goes, right? You, you build it up over years, but you lose it in a second. Um, so I think integrity is, is probably the, the biggest one for me. Um, and having to really, really reel yourself in and say, I, I don't want to say justify, but look for the reasons why that may have been lost in somebody else. Um, but then also check yourself. You know, we're all prone to, to um, tell these little white lies and to, you know, fib occasionally to, to bring something along more quickly. Um, and when you do that, you start to have a real problem with yourself and, and you start to get into conflict there. So I think also just whatever that, that moral compass is, you have to apply it to other people as much as you do to yourself and vice versa. Yeah. yeah. I, I know from my my own personal experience when when I got things wrong and I had slipped up it, it's been the thing I've agonized over for years afterwards of, of doing it wrong uh, and and I find it's a bit like I I practice mindfulness and a bit of yoga as well to to manage the stress the, the small stuff uh which I'm sweating about um and I do find that in 
when I'm being mindful, you'll have a thought and then you'll drift off and then you've got to bring it back on and drift off again the other way. And it's a bit like that for me with our values and our principles that, that, that as a CEO, you have to deal with shades of gray. It's not black. It's not white. That's why they pick it to you because it's no one else can solve it. They go, I, I don't know how to solve it. This is a real naughty, messy problem. Give it to the CEO. She'll solve it. Well, oh, what do you do with it? So it's like the least worst option. And I, was it Churchill described democracy as the least worst system of running a country um, that, that you'll have these areas of, of uh, gray in, as a CEO, but not on integrity. You know, people go, oh, well, it, it, it sort of follows the letter of the law, but not the spirit. You know, you, you know what you're doing. And, you know, people who are, let's say, we have furlough in this country for people. And, and it's for people who are not able to, to carry on working. And so they keep them there. But other people are fraudulently claiming it and still working. But that's not, that's not gray. That's clearly wrong. You know, and, and just, oh, you can claim for it. Yeah, you might claim for it, but it's, it's, it's immoral and it's illegal and you're just taking taxpayers' money. So I think time and again, it's one that we can never let the guard down. Every day, it's a bit like a pint of juice. It, it, you're lowering it or you're rising, it. you're topping it up or you're running out. That's yeah. a great story. What about PQ, the, the second one, the sort of meaning and purpose, your vocation, your, your calling, your dharma? You know, what, 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 why do you do what you do, Pamela? I love, I am that kid who just loves her job. And I've said that since I started in Proudfoot. So I think I'm really fortunate in that regard. And I feel so bad for, for kids who um, don't know what their calling is, you know, or don't figure that out early. Um, I wish I was the kid who said, I want to be a doctor when I grow up. You know, I wasn't that. And I, and, uh, or, or rather, you know, I probably was the kid who said, I want to be a major motion picture star or a country singing, you know, Western singing sensation. I was probably that. Um, but I didn't wake up and say, I want to be a consultant. But once I got into it and I realized what you do, I just thought, what an, what an absolutely fabulous role to have. You get to learn from the people that you're working with and from all these other sources. And then you get to share that. And you get to to really bring um, bring out the best in other people, which is I think I think that's what um, you know. I mentioned earlier that Proudfoot went through a turnaround, and for many many years we were seen as this business that that went in and just did efficiency. You know, we made a company more productive, and and in fact I think our tagline said something as as lack of inspiring as you know productivity um, or something around that you know those wording years ago. Um, and it couldn't be further from the truth because really what, what we do and what I love about what we do is that we help people really figure out how to bring their best selves to work. And by the way, if you do that, you're going to have a productive company and we bring those two together. And so, yes, we get in there and, and we save a company a, a huge amount of money or, you know, given coming out of the pandemic, lots of businesses that are obviously battening down the hatches and needing to reduce their cost base. But you can't do that by going in and bullying everybody, you know, and firing everyone. You've got to produce a company that's both fit and healthy. And so the fact that, that really we can enable people to do a better job for their company and the byproduct is, and it's also going to be more productive, you'll have happier customers, um, you know, and hopefully you'll have much more engaged employees because of the way that you do it will also be a byproduct. So for me, I, I just, you know, uh, uh, the horrible thing about me is that there's no work-life balance. Um, my job is my hobby. When I'm not working, I'm learning how to do my job better or I'm learning something I can apply to my job more. And so I'm super lucky that, you know, I mean, imagine if, if that were not the case and you were working in a pandemic and had to work 24-7 and you didn't like it, which is why I just, I, I really think, boy, we have to fix this engagement problem. It, it feels like a lifelong calling, you know? Yeah. Well, well many things that you just said trigger for me. We'll, we'll talk about health uh, quotient in a minute and, and uh, physical mental health. But um, uh, I, I found recently, I, I sort of wondered, but that I'm dyslexic, maths, spelling, reading, and, uh, and writing, even though I managed to write a couple of books like you. Um, but I do it by dictating uh, rather than writing because my spelling is a howler. So if you get a, a strange email from me, I apologize now if you misspelled something. But um, one of the byproducts is a bit like you. I am obsessed about learning and, and, and finding teachable points of view, which 
as a, as a, as a trusted advisor to CEOs, I, I, I have this mix between, on the one hand, the coach who asks some great questions, what do you want to think about? What are your thoughts? And then I zip it and I listen really well. But on the other hand, I have got massive amount of information that I've accumulated from this obsessive reading to prove to a long dead teacher that I wasn't thick, who thought I was thick. And um, so, so, and like you, I'm just constantly reading, learning, listening. I've got about five audiobooks on the go at the same time and a couple of books by the bed on the gut and, and you know, nutrition and things like this. And, and then reading Obama's book, A Promised Land, which is very fascinating and so on. And then Stanley McChrystal. And, and, and so it's lovely hearing that. Um, but I'm interested in what you've noticed in the industry of consulting because I've noticed I was looking at a, a survey by the International Coaching Federation, I'm a master certified coach with them, that they've seen a lot of people. And I, I saw this quite initially, some of my old clients just suddenly chopped off, you know, the, the big famous names, they went, no, nope, stop it. No more leadership development, no more coaching. And you go, okay, you're in a pandemic and a crisis and you're going to cut leadership. Okay, does that sound like a really good idea? Yeah, 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 we, we, we you know, we're hemorrhaging money, so but you're a multi-billion business and you're not developing your stuff. What message is that sending to them? And I wondered if you'd come across that because I've seen a number that just pull the drawbridge up, whereas others are starting to, to develop, but you're in a recession, a long recession of some 10 years, I think, and a pandemic which will last two, three years and the, vi the virus will be around with us for many years to come. Did you see people do that, that knee-jerk reaction and chop things? And, and, and did you find that you had to pivot and find new kinds of clients? Is, is, is that what sure. you found? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, what, what we've had is a real combination. I, I would almost say 50-50. Um, we had a, the moment the pandemic hit, consulting spend got all put on hold by about 60% of our client base. And so we went into pause mode with many of them. That initial pause was then split between those who did it as a cost question. Immediately, um, they wanted to stop any cost going out. And so they, they paused that spend for that very reason. And those guys, many of them didn't bounce back. So they didn't come back later and say, okay, now that we've, we've gotten organized, we're gonna get going. The, another group, they stopped, but they stopped for what I, I do think in hindsight was a very, very good reason. And that was, to have that moment of pause to reassess and to say to themselves, what, what do we really need to do here? Where should we save our money? What should we, you know, what's the pivot that we need to do? And those guys recovered very quickly. They went into their crisis plan, um, their business continuity plans, and then they came back to us and said, right then, you know, we've got our safety protocols in place now. We need to keep moving. We can't, you know, the world can't stop because it, we need to, to, the world needs to keep going. And so let's get on with it. Um, and then there was, there's a third group that has bought consulting as a direct result. They've said to themselves, boy, this is a massive disruption, a massive change. Um, we've got to do major transformation. We're not good at that. Most companies aren't because it's not their day job. Um, and so can you guys come in and really help us transform? And so that's the, those are the guys who I think will have that, they've got a longer view They've got a real long tail view on business and they're saying, let's use the opportunity to reset and to, to, and essentially reboot. And let's not lose, um, let's not lose that moment, you know, because of it. So I, I think we've had a real cross the, the breadth of that conversation. We've had a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, and as a result, we've had to, I mean, we've had, uh, well, actually, we had one client I, I just love in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we would ordinarily get boots on the ground. And that was our competitive advantage. So as a company, we had to do a real, a real pause and think about this as well, because we'd always gone to market saying, we're the guys who can be 4000 meters up in the Andes, we can be on the border of the Congo, you know, and we're going to help you improve and transform your business. And suddenly, we couldn't travel. And suddenly, you know, our guys couldn't get on the ground. So we did our, our first project that was 100% remote and six months of record production and for that company. And so we, we completely proved to ourselves that we can do it. Um, and the business 
itself, our client, prove that they can absorb, you know, the advice, if you like, long distance. Do we want to do that 100% remote going forward? No, um, because we're big believers that you do have to connect, you do have to engage, you have to go shoulder to shoulder. If the, if the guys go underground, you've got to go underground. You know, you can't do your advice from afar. So we'd like it to be a combination of, of the two. Um, but it's, it's that kind of learn, you know, look, listen and learn real quick um, and then get on with it. And, and, and then course correct equally as quick, you know, during these, these entire times. Yeah, great. And we were talking earlier about um, you, like me, and, I, uh, and my wife and I laugh about because we're, we're workaholics. Cause, and, and particularly in this pandemic, you have to work longer hours to make the same kind of earning you did. Uh, and the fees have changed and, and there is a bit of a race to the bottom in some areas. But, but we also run a charity for vulnerable girls and modern slavery and trafficking, which is... Uh, fascinating um, but um, th there is this danger the two of us work late into the evening till 10 at night or and then we're doing a bit of work at the weekends and then a bit more and this kind of stuff because oh, these girls really need our help that kind of stuff and you've got to be so careful that you can you can really affect your health and your well-being by not being balanced and what, what's your learning around HQ health quotient which is often not in many leadership mod modules or models about your physical health and your mental health. And, and what, what, what tips and advice uh, have you had to teach yourself because you are so committed and passionate about your work, but you've got to balance it? Yeah, I think the big learning for me was I didn't have, um, I didn't have a plan on that. And so I had to really learn quickly to dedicate time to it that I wouldn't ordinarily, you know, for me, um, exercise for me was running through Heathrow in my four inch, five inch heels, you know, with my luggage. And that was, that was my exercise program. Um, and suddenly I didn't have that. Suddenly I'm sitting on my butt, you know, and my butt's expanding and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if this goes on too much longer, I'm going to have to buy an entire new wardrobe. You talk about first world problems. Um, but I learned two major things out of it. One is, uh, you you have to book your I heard that wonderful phrase of book travel time into your diary otherwise you don't stop and so for me it was a lesson learned that I would get on a flight and then I'd catch up on my reading and I'd have my forced downtime I'd love long hauls to Asia because it would give me 12 14 16 hours where I could just do me time and so the biggest learning there is to do it, you know, to make sure that you still have your travel time um, in that regard. I mean, thank goodness I've got a dog because you're forced to go out. Um, even I live in Toronto, so it's, you know, it's minus a gazillion degrees, but you're forced to go out with, with the, the, the dog each day. Um, so I, I think being conscious of that and really building it in. I love my chief of staff is a, is a yogi extraordinaire. She's an exercise girl. And for her, it's just natural. You get out of bed, you go for a jog, you get on with your day. And that's what I aspire to now is to get that built in as a routine, almost like, like the routine of 1530. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have definitely, for some time now, been doing the routine. Uh, and, and somebody taught me and, and um, I can't remember where it came from. This bookends, morning and evening bookends. So you cannot control the middle of the day. It's going to run away with you. You might have plans, but no plan survives the first meeting with the enemy is the, is the uh, adjunct from General von Molk, the Prussian general. So, so when I get up, I'm straight into, I literally get up at 7.30, take out Archie the dog. He goes and has his pee. I come back. And then straight into 15 minutes of mindfulness, headspace, or calm, normally headspace. Then I might do either 30 minutes of yoga or 30 minutes in the garage, which is like a, a gymnasium, a hit training, cross trainer, that kind of stuff. Then walk the dog. And, and then I'm starting the day slightly later, but I might work through for 12 hours with a lunch break and a power nap. And I find a 20 minute power nap, it, it just increases my productivity by about 30%. It's, it's quite phenomenal. Now, see, that's because you're a man. If you ask a woman how easy it is to do a power nap, they have a completely different view. Um, just as, you know, you guys go to bed at night and, and even before your head hits the pillow, you're snoring. And a woman, no, we, we want to rehash the 75 million things we did wrong this year or this decade, you know, before we go to sleep. 
So I, I think that's a big learning for, for we women um, is really to, to get into that sleep mode and, and make sure we make the best use of that um, and get that mind, mindfulness going so that you're not rehashing, you know, the world of the last 75 years. No, very true. And Why We Sleep um, by Matthew Walker from Harvard is a super... Yeah which I'm sure you've come across or listened to him, uh, and, and sleep, you know, the, the difference between six hours and seven to eight hours is 30% in your performance. So, mm-hmm. uh, and also, as I saw with my late mother-in-law uh, who got Alzheimer's, the lack of sleep also has an impact later in life. So you, you pay the price at some stage. You might go, hey, I can get by on four hours. Yeah, I'm special. No, you're not. It, and Margaret Thatcher and... Um, and also uh, the American president, um, who was an actor, I think of his name, Ronnie Reagan, yeah. both, both got very bad Alzheimer's because they, they had abused their system and they had too much beta amyloid, the, um, the, 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 the toxic protein, which is in the brain, which gets flushed out when you sleep. You literally, the, the cerebral fluid flushes through it like a car wash. But it, it needs a sort of seven to eight hour cycle to do that. And if it hasn't done it, you've still got the toxins in there, which builds like plaque within your brain. So thank you for reminding me of all of that. <laughs> it's going to it's going to cause even more le- you know even less sleep for me now because it's I'm going to strip about the, the fact, fact that I don't sleep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then from health quotient to uh, what I call IQ, wisdom, judgment, decision making. Uh, who who do you have now as your board and your coaches and your advisors? You've got your team, but who who gives you good wisdom? I think um So a a couple of different people in my world give me um, great gratitude that they're in my life and for very different reasons. So I mentioned um, I mentioned a woman by the name of Fiona and and I always feel terrible because her name is an alphabet. And so I'm not even going to try to say it because I can't. Um, But Fiona is the is the um, principal at Source Global Research. And so I get the double whammy with, with her that she owns her own business and has the challenges around that. The business is in the business of researching in the consulting market. So I was it was really fortunate to, it was super fortunate that I met her um, because she also has a different view, an external set of eyes on the consulting business that you can tap into. Um, she's in and around the same age as me. She's a woman. Um, you know, a lot of the, and I, I've not in my younger years, I, I really didn't believe in the, in, in uh, playing the female card, if you like, I, I, I really didn't think there was that much of a difference. And then in hindsight, you look at it and you think, well, actually there really was, you were just not bright enough to see it, you know, or, or for whatever reason. But I think all of those things, um, when I look at someone like her and we keep in touch, you know, we don't do the one five thirty necessarily, but probably once a week uh, we touch base. She's in London, I'm in Toronto. And it's important to me to have that contact because she she also level sets so she's somebody who can say to you "Mm, I don't think you should look at it that way you know or maybe you're being and you might if your spouse says to you you're being too sensitive you know you know that you're going to have to be scraped off the ceiling and and you're you know you're you're really shutting down but if a, a trusted friend and someone who understands the business says that to you you take it in so much more so I think for me I've got a couple of those completely disparate different types of individuals that I go to um, who give me that that different kind of a view and a different perspective than normal and then I, I have to laugh you know um uh, I remember having a, a chat with a girlfriend of mine who asked me about my mum and dad's advice and, you know, do I go to them? And of course, my dad, I used to do that a great deal and, and he's since gone. Um, but my mum is now in her, her mid 80s. She's a hoot. And she is a little German lady. She still drives this big kick ass four wheel drive around her little village. And and I, I will say something to my mum, and she is the pragmatic response. So you don't go to her for anything except absolute brutal truth. And so the more recent advice that she has given me, when I got promoted to um, CEO, I called her and knowing that my dad would have been super, really, really chuffed about it. I told my mum and her immediate response was, well, I hope they're going to pay you well. <laughs> and that was it, you know. Um, and And so it's, 
you just kind of, I think you just have to look for, because there's absolutely nothing wrong with that response, you know, but you would never dream to say that and you would never look for it as a piece of feedback from somebody. Um, but that's, that's the, the different types of responses that yeah. you get. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And so from IQ to EQ uh, and in our research, when we were uh, doing the research and writing the books, um, Mine was on inspiring leadership. My wife, Lee, wrote Inspiring Women Leaders, where she interviewed over 200 women, which was fascinating. And that's a whole story in itself. But that IQ, which is so respected and so held in high esteem by many organizations, particularly consulting firms, and I was in Pete Price Waterhouse Coopers and IBM Consulting, um, only accounts for 6% of people's performance, whereas EQ accounts for 30%. Um, so, so what have you learned about EQ? Because you clearly have it in large doses. So what would be your top tips on, on developing EQ? You know, um, I'd love to have a chat with your wife about that question and, where, and how different it is for, for men and women. Um, but, I, but I'd almost deflect this one for you to ask your wife and, and, and have a chat with her about this. But I tend to think that um, through my career, I've learned. Actually, I'll answer your question first, and then I'll give you this background one. But my my big thing that I think is super important about um, EQ is that you you can't compete with people. You have to figure out how to lift one another up, and and I think that understanding that is a long journey for a lot of people, including including me. I think. Um, you know, lots of times in my career, I've thought back and, and wondered why something happened the way that it did. And really what I discovered is that I was choosing the route of competing with it, with somebody else rather than looking at how you can really collaborate and lift one another up. So I think for me, one of the biggest things is that whole, whole lifting each other up. And then the thing I'd love to have a chat with your wife about is whether women are more competitive at work still um, than men. Leading question, because clearly I think they are. Um, or So I should take the still out. But I, I tend to believe that we women, we're, we can be buggers with one another yeah. you know we, we don't choose to lift each other up we choose to compete and that's what I'm I'm hell-bent now on making sure that I don't do that with women no matter my personal view of the woman yeah uh, and this uh, I've, I've discussed this at length with my wife uh, obviously in the research she did and what the women she interviewed said <clears throat> and surprisingly large numbers of women would say I do not want to have a female boss large numbers uh, and also that, that like I thought when she got into the board, she'd, she'd send the ladder down and uh, the lift back down and help us come up. But no, she didn't want any competition in there. She was Queen Bee. And, and, and that's a generalization because not everybody's like, but just that, that, that men can be brutal and violent um, and can be scheming and maneuvering. You can't generalize with either sex. Everybody's unique but but women there's a special place in hell as as they say for 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 women who who really hurt other women or or really cool and, and i've watched this even with my wife who i think is very attractive but when she comes along and there's another attractive one she'll just like blank her completely but chat away happily to the men and you go wow woo, what ah be terrible yeah, and and so so blokes will sort of punch each other or or, or do worse, but um, or they can be just rude and obnoxious or ignore each other or brutal or bullish. So so there isn't a generalization, but no, she 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 found from the the two hundred interviews she did as part of her book, it was a constant theme. The women were saying, "But why don't we help each other more?" The sisterhood, you know, like look look after each other. It's hard enough as it is, and then we make it doubly hard for anybody else trying to come into our pool. Well, we, yeah. we, we, we compete with them. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a you know, on that subject, shout out to the, the then CEO of Main Power. Her name is, it was 20 years ago. Her name has since skipped out of my brain. But I will never forget, I did a, a, a meeting with her, with another, another guy that I, a colleague I was working with. And as we left, she came over to me and she was walking us out of the, the meeting room and so on. And she said, Pamela, you're you're young, and and I'm I'm not that young, but I I look at I'm close to sixty. So, um, and twenty years ago I was in my forties. I think she thought I was in my thirties, you know, early thirties. And she said, as you go through 
your career, just remember something. And that's that women will have a debate about something and it will take them a few days to get over it. Whereas the men will already be on the golf course. They'll already be in the pub. They'll already have a drink um, together. And don't, don't be one of those women. That's and it has always stuck with me. Very good advice. Really yeah. good. Um, we're, we're almost near the end of it, but just a couple of quick fire questions. Resilience, um, RQ. Um, what's your sort of one tip of, of, of how you've pulled yourself back from adversity and picked yourself up? I think it's got to be talk. Um, you've got to talk to people. You've got to talk through, the, you know, whatever the issues, whatever the, you know, you come into a pandemic, you know that your your company is at risk because suddenly the consulting spend has gone. You've got all these jobs you've got to save and 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 keep your clients that you've you've got, and you know there's just so much coming at you. And I think that um, I think the two things are one is that you've really got to talk. Um, and the other is you've got to recognise that these are not normal times and nobody's been through this stuff and there is no perfect answer. You just have to figure it out yeah. um, and, not, and not hold yourself, understand what's in your control and what's not and not hold yourself accountable for what's not in your control personally. Yeah, and, and that is a, a very strong stoic philosophy, which I follow very strongly. Control the controllables. Yeah. Um, the last two would be brand and then legacy. So um, what I call BQ is your brand, your reputation, your image, your impact. How have you learned from like 360 and feedback? What, what's been the main learning from that and any mistakes you've made in your life? I'm a terrible interrupter. So I had to giggle when I, I love those articles that, that you sent, um, you know, talking about interrupting. And I, and I excuse it because it's usually my enthusiasm um, or my passion is number one, or I have a really short fuse. And if somebody is going down the, ro the wrong road, I don't want, particularly if I'm under pressure, I don't want to spend all that time going down the wrong road, which of course, both of those are so wrong. Um, and, you know, it's been a real learning experience over time to reel that in. And, and I think I'm getting better, um, but I know that that still bugs the living hell out of some of my team when I, you know, I just feel so compelled to blurt something out and, and get in there. So I've got to say that, that that's probably, and clearly from the smile on your face, it's not me alone who suffers from that. <laughs> all, all of us, all of us, me too. Uh, work, work in progress, constant work in progress. Uh, and finally, uh, well, I've got a little extra one at the end. Um, legacy, uh, short-term legacy that you'd like to leave and uh, long-term legacy. Uh, make it different from my old Sergeant Major who said, sir, you're a legacy in your own lunchtime, which I think <laughs> was an insult. Which you were trying to describe. But what would you like your legacy to be, short and long-term? Oh, short term, I, I want to live up to um, the whole reinventing 75-year-old company, um, you know, and it's we've done some really brilliant stuff to do that, but we're not there yet. Um, and I think that, you know, when you get when you get the Financial Times saying that you're you're in the list of, of uh, their um, leading companies, you know, leading consulting firms, that's when you say, oh, God, I'm chuffed about that. You know, that's bloody brilliant. Um, so I, I want to continue that journey. It's something that is a short-term one, though, because there's a finite date on turning a, a business around. Um, and and I guess the the long-term one is is that whole. How do you help people feel what I do about work? You know, how do you how do you really get people to want to feel that it's okay to go all in at work or to find some little nugget at work that helps them um, think that it's it's you know not a bad thing to go to work every day. Um, so how do you get them to have that fair trade? So I, I think, you know, I hate using the word engagement because it's such a corporate word, but it, but it's a, a language that everybody understands. But to me, it's just how do you get people to feel good about work? How do you get them to go all in? Yeah, that's great. And the, and the final one um, is uh, if there was a book that you've found very useful on leadership or the, anything like that that you've recently read that you'd uh, recommend to people, what would it be? Oh gosh, I um I probably have two. One's one is an old book that I used as a bit of a bible. Um and it's a weird one in that it's less about leadership and more about I want to say marketing um if you interpret it that way or change management, but it's Chip and Dan Heath's book um Made to Stick. And nice. and so it's a really weird choice because um it's 
yeah, it's not it's not that lead, leadership side that most people imagine when you think about leadership. Um, but it gives you it gives you pause and food to pause through um, to reconsider how you run your business based on some of the things that you wouldn't normally think about from a leadership perspective. Um, so it is it, it's an interesting one. I think it's years old now. I, I can't remember when it was published, but at the time I made all of my team in our change management group read it. Um, but today, the one that I'm enjoying today is um uh, it's it's ten lessons for a post pandemic world. Uh-huh. Um, the the um, Fareed Fareed Zakara. I ne- I'm t- clearly I don't spend enough time listening to how people say their names, um, but it is it's a great read. It's uh, a, a journalist who has who clearly spent the pandemic really thinking through how did we get here and what are the lessons learned from it. And I am really enjoying that. I'm almost finished. Yeah. I, it's up there with Richard's, Sir Richard's book. So I'm trying to do the two and keep up to date on all my other reading. Having written your own book, which was excellent. <laughs> well, Pamela Haggett, thank you very much indeed. Highly engaging. Um, and people said you were very inspiring. Either. I, I found you so. And I'm sure people listening to this in 50 countries around the world will really enjoy it. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Fabulous. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.